out of the sky My dreams went crashing When you said goodbye Who'd think that after all I've been to you That you and I would be through Well, hello, and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So if you've been following along, you know we are working on the fourth volume of the Selected Letters of H.P. Lovecraft, looking uh, at least briefly at every single letter in that collection, each episode covering about 20 letters. Now, I had come into the fourth volume of the Selected Letters with a lot of excitement over, over the period of time it covers, you know, 1932 to 1934, pretty exciting years in American history, in world history. Really, you have uh, the rise of Japan in East Asia, the growing conflict with with China, the kind of on the back burner, the conflict in the Pacific. You have the New Deal, the election of Roosevelt, the rise of fascism in Europe, uh, especially with the rise of the Nazis in 1933 in Germany. So I was expecting to get a lot of commentary on this stuff because a lot of this stuff seems to intersect with issues of, of race, which is kind of really what. I kind of went into this podcast series, this Lovecraft read through with that in mind. I was hoping to really kind of lay out my thoughts pretty systematically about Lovecraft's views about race and about civilization and um, about all that through his stories and through some of his nonfiction writing, including his letters. Um, but to be honest, you know, I think the first half of the fourth volume of the Selected Letters um, and we just finished volume, uh, episode five of I think we'll be about 10 episodes have been pretty tame in this regard. I thought we still got a lot more in volume two and three of these kinds of things. Volume four had a lot about his kind of personal life, you know, his poverty, his lack of ability to publish. He wrote a lot of revisions in this period of time, as we'll see in future episodes. I, I was actually just collecting all of the uh, audiobooks for the various uh, revisions. There's a lot of revisions he wrote during this period of time for a lot of different people. And he talks about some of them um, in these letters. So there's a bit on that. There's this frustration of him trying to find his own voice. Uh, you know, the difficulty he had finding a market in weird tales for his new style. Um, so there's a lot of that. There's a lot of stuff about literature. Not so much politics. Uh, in most of these, you can go back and maybe you can hear my feel my my kind of a little bit of my frustration over that. Well, that changes in this 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 episode because we have a handful of letters where we really see Lovecraft uh, exploring uh, some some issues of race pretty directly and in pretty disgusting fashion at some point. And particularly, I'm thinking of one letter to J. Vernon Shea where he really lays it on thick. But I think there's probably four or five letters here which really stand out as important letters if you're interested in exploring Lovecraft's discourse on race. So um, so I'm kind of excited about that. I don't know if that's going to carry through uh, necessarily for all the other uh, letters in this book. I, I kind of got slowed down in my note-taking because of a lot of personal issues lately. Um, but, but anyways, it is what it is. But um, all right. So let's let's see what we have here. So we have 12 uh, different people he wrote to uh, in the 20 letters I'm going to look at today. So 
you know, a lot of these are one-offs. So a lot, in many cases, he wrote just one letter to one person in this period, at least as far as collected in the selected letters. As always, there's a little asterisk in those statements because I don't have the complete set of his letters. Um, the selected letters are that, they're selected letters. So, um, but I think it is representative of who he's kind of communicating with and some of the topics he's talking about at that time. Um, the most any one person is to James Fernand Morton, his old friend, where we have four letters, uh, and most of the rest is just one. Um, now, interestingly, we have a letter to Robert Block. I don't know if this is his first to Robert Block. I, I think it's the it's the first I remember talking about. Robert Block was another late uh, kind of addition to the Lovecraft circle, and he's a very important one because, of course, the the story Haunter in the Dark is heavily influenced by his relationship with Robert Block, as we'll see in. Um, future episode another with Wisconsin connection along with uh, August or Leth. Uh, what else do we have here? Yeah, Helen V. Sully. I think that's a new person too, or at least one I don't remember uh, having too many letters from. Um, but otherwise it's the same, mostly the same, same cast of characters that we've been talking about for a while. So let's just jump in starting with James Ferdinand uh, Morton. Um, now, some of these I, I think I'm going to be quick with because I want to focus on some of the what I think see as some of the more unhinged letters really dealing with some of these these issues of race, uh, a lot of stuff about anti-Semitism. I think the context of this is the emergence of 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 the Nazis in Germany and the beginning of the passage of laws that restricted the, the rights and the, the mobility and the economic freedoms of German Jews. Now, if you don't know, the, the real, the kind of the date we normally give for the rise of Adolf Hitler is March 1933 with the passage of the Enabling Act by the Reichstag, which uh, gave him the power he needed to consolidate his authority. It happened really quickly after his election, election to chancellor in, in 1933. It was a very quick uh, seizure of power. And then, um, you know, refer to European history textbooks for the rest of that story. Um, but of course, uh, the anti-Jewish policies came down almost immediately, culminating in the, well, of course, on the Holocaust, but in the more short term, you have the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, which, you know, were restrictions on um, uh, the rights of Jews and a lot of a lot about the defining who the Jew is in German society. Um, issues of like marriage and, and mixed blood people. Of course, the Germans define Jew Jewishness racially and by blood, unlike Europeans or unlike unlike Americans, and that's something that actually comes up in these letters a little bit. That's why I mention it. All right. Anyways, let's let's jump in and see what we have. So the first of these is uh, uh, April twenty seventh, nineteen thirty three, to James Fernand Morton. Uh, this one deals with the. Uh, this is a good one actually, if you're interested in the cosmic horror part and in Lovecraft fiction, because he gives a kind of a genealogy of the gods here, the relationship between like Yogg-Sothoth and Nyarlathotep and Asathoth and Cthulhu and all those. And I think this this is maybe the foundation of efforts by people, you know, sense to kind of create the genealogy. I think some of it's in the text too, but it's really laid out here pretty closely. But what Lovecraft does here is he kind of puts himself in the genealogy itself which is kind of fun. It's just him having a little bit of fun with his own creation. So it's a nice letter uh, showing him having a little bit of fun with his, with his mythology. But uh, as for his life and his 
biography, the important thing here is his, his moving. I, I think I mentioned it last episode, kind of jump on the gun a little bit, but he it's during this spring of ninety of thirty three, of nineteen thirty three that Lovecraft moves to sixty six College Street in Providence, largely because of poverty, and he moves to do a place he rather likes. He he, he often praises this building on sixty six College Street for being kind of a Georgian building, a real colonial building. Uh, so he really enjoyed the architecture of it, but it doesn't really solve his financial problems um, completely. Um, so that's one. Um, then we have May 15th, uh, 1933, also to James Fernand Morton, where he does talk about moving into this new house uh, on 66 College Street. And he is really happy to move into this place, which has this colonial feel. It's this colonial style house he really likes. Um, now, his most difficult task, he complains to his friend about, is having to move books, uh, which if, if, you're a, if you're a book reader, like some of you probably are, and you've ever had to move, you know, moving books is a big problem. I've moved internationally, logging, hauling books across um, oceans. So, uh, or I remember when I was in graduate school, I used to have to go to take boxes of books to the post office and have them ship book rate, you know, for like 10 bucks a, a box. And, and sometimes the books boxes never even got to their destination. So I know all about the trouble moving. He's just moving, of course, within Providence. Uh, and I think he mentioned having some people help him. So he might be complaining a little bit too much, but it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a relatable problem that he had here. Um, so looking ahead, uh, yeah, June 12th, 1933. Now, this is one of the letters I mentioned before that, that seems to really explore race uh, pretty directly. Now, he talks a little bit more about settling to the new house. Um, and I was thinking when I read this, is like, is he responding to the Nuremberg Laws? But then I remembered, no, those were already a couple years later. But maybe earlier German laws were being passed because he seems to really be talking about how Judaism is being defined and he's talking about like actually should there be limits on intermarriage between Jews and and other and non-Jews and he seems to be somewhat okay with this there's actually a couple letters here where he talks about interracial marriage and seems to promote the idea of restrictions on interracial marriage one is explicitly about African Americans but this is just as troubling in a way he writes, for instance, uh, quote, while, of course, the demand for more than 0.75 Aryan blood in full citizens is an excessive one, except where the diluting blood is biologically inferior, as with Negroids and Australoids, it remains a fact that many modern nations need to take steps to preserve the integrity of their own native cultures against shrewd and pushing alien influences. One must view such problems realistically, without patriotic sentimentality like Hitler's on the one hand, and without idealistic sentimentality on the other. Certainly a dash of alien blood of a superior race does not harm another superior stock so long as the culture is unimpaired. But that's where the rub comes. When the alien element is strong or shrewd enough to menace the purity of the culture, it mists what it passes parasitically lodges. It is time to do something. So far as Jews are concerned, it wouldn't hurt a nation to absorb a few thousand provided they were not physiognomically apparent types and provided they left their culture and folkways behind them so that the new generations would hold no memories except for the dominant racial tradition. End quote. So he, he says Hitler's wrong. He's wrong in a couple ways, according to Lovecraft. 
mostly because of this kind of biological definition of, of Judaism, right? He, he writes later on, good Jew-Aryan relations can only come after these plain truths are recognized on both sides. In the end, there'll have to be a separation of the cultural Jew from the body politic, plus a complete absorption with the abandonment of hereditary traditions of thousands of other Jews. That'll call for concessions on both sides. The Jews will have to realize that they can't drag their folk ways into our national patterns, end quote. So he's pretty, it's a horrible thing to say, actually. It's, it's anti-immigrant, it's, it's anti-Semitic, it's ridiculous, uh, clearly. But he's not talking about Jews here as a biological category the way Germans were. Right. And he kind of criticizes Hitler for doing that a little bit. He's talking more about this Jewish culture that he thinks can pollute a, a dominant established culture. Um, so I don't want to say too much more about this, but this is really like a wow passage. And it goes on for a few pages in, in some detail about this. Um, but that's just one thing in this letter, by the way. Um, the other thing, there's two other things in this letter. Uh, so this is one to kind of highlight or star and, and come back to if you really want to study this on your own. Um, again, it's June 12th, 1933 to James Ferdinand Morton. The other is he talks about Bolshevism or communism, right? And he's got a weird attitude towards it because a lot of, as I talked about in a previous episode, a lot of what he says about machine culture and the way out of it and the solution to the problem of machine culture is seems to lend itself actually to socialistic type of policies, right? Or like some kind of planning is, is one thing he seems not hostile to in the context of machine culture. But his real problem with communism seems to be their, their kind of hostility to, to Western culture, which, you know, which I'm not sure is very fair, to be honest. Of course, Marxism itself comes out of Western philosophical traditions. So I think he's not really arguing that much maybe he's he's kind of reducing certain soviet elements and of course the soviet union is it was in russia largely which was you know kind of a mixed it's more of an eastern culture right it's not fully western european culture same way you could talk about chinese communism today it's it's certainly got this marxist influence but it's got this kind of anti-western attitude but that may be as much coming coming out of chinese culture as it is coming out of Marxism. Um, so I don't know. But I, I think he's he's kind of not fully appreciating the Marxist tradition, which he never really studied or read that much about. But it's in here anyways. But he's got something new. He said all that stuff, before, everything I just said, before, he already said in other letters. But he's got something interesting here where he talks about Marxist aesthetics. And he, so he's got this, this again, a very vulgar Marx idea of Marxism as seen as a culture as just a reflection of the economic system, right? Uh, often when people criticize historical materialism, they'll say, oh, Marxists just reduce everything to economics. And he's saying, well, Marxists think all just culture is a reflection of the economic system. And he says, no, no, culture is a reflection of the civilization that is, that is, come out of going back you know hundreds and hundreds or thousands of years um quote contrary to the marxolators who assume that every shift of economic balance must necessarily produce a corresponding shift in aesthetics it is really only once in a long while that a genuinely fresh art emerges and when such does emerge it is not in answer to any theorist summons or synchronized with any economic development as wheezed in the gags of carlo marx 
The plain fact is that in an age of science, mechanics, and commerce, it's entirely antagonistic to art and highly unlikely to evoke any new development, end quote. So on, on the one hand, the problem he seems doesn't seem to be Marxism. It's this machine age, which he, of course, has been talking about for a long time in these letters, which if that's the case, then Marxism is just a part of that same machine culture. So why pick on the Marxists so much? They seem to just be someone who embraces the machine culture a lot more fully. Um, but then this leads into a discussion where he kind of repeats what he said before about you know, mechanized culture. Now, he wants to insist that kind of Western culture has these deep roots and it's not unchanging, but it's, it's, it's kind of rooted in something that goes way, way back, right? But then he has the problem of modernism because modernism, if you've ever studied it, you know, it's hard not to see it as being a direct product of recent developments, for the time at least, in, in science and in technology. Think of, think of futurism or think of the Ashcan school or think of uh, um, constructivism or some of the architectural trends of the early 20th century. These are all reflecting the industrial age, right? Um, and that's part of the West, Western tradition too, right? So he, Lovecraft has a problem kind of dealing with modernism, I think. Um, and then the third thing he talks about is he comes back to his issue of civilization. And he, he ties this all together, of course. This is tied, this connects everything together that he's talking about. Aesthetics and socialism and machine age and uh, immigration, and particularly Judaism. He says, civilization means settledness, harmony, leisure, and the preservation of the accumulated heritage of memories, which alone gives life and sanity-saving illusions of significance, direction, and interest. It means the enthronement of permanence and quality and the crushing of the speed, quantity, commerce, octopus, which preys on its vitals. Its natural mood is one of continuity, and its natural language is that of an art with the roots and memories, end quote. So that's a bit repetitive, too. We've seen this before, but it kind of sums up this letter pretty nicely. So this is one to go to, June 12th, 1933. I think it's worth uh, reading. It's, it's one of actually, it's the first letter from this selection that I think, maybe except for some of the Howard ones, but I, I'm kind of dealing with those differently, as you know. Um, this is one to really go to. It's one of a handful that really are a must read in this in this section. So moving on. Uh, yeah, the next one is the, the final one I want from, to, to Morton. I want to look at today is July 7th, 1933, um, where he, this is he's just talking about Price, Ehoff and Price coming to visit. And he's going on his like walking tours, his tours of New England with Price. And he talks a little bit about the architecture of the Narragansett plantations. It's, a, it's an old topic he likes to talk about, which is New England architecture. But I guess the significant element of this is the presence of Price with, with, um, with Lovecraft. Uh, not long after the completion of the, the Beyond the Gate of the Silver Key. Is that the name of it? The Silver Key sequel. All right, that's it. That's that's what we got from Morton. So one really good letter here to I think to to look at. And then we got the move. The move's not insignificant either. Uh, so next we have a letter to Elizabeth Tolbridge, dated April 29th, um, nineteen thirty three. Here, this is more personal. Nothing much to say about this. He he talks about the need to move. Uh, he talks about his poor income and the need to sell the price story for some money, for some cash. 
and uh, just what it's like to move in the spring weather. So it's about the move. And there's actually quite a few letters here which really just deal with uh, the move. All right, uh, then moving on once again, we got three letters to August Derleth. Um, the first of these is also about moving. So this one is dated May 1933, uh, where he complains about the difficulty of moving, something he's already complained to his other friends about. He talks about the furniture uh, in the new house and its architecture, and he kind of talks a little bit about both Victorian and Georgian furniture. Um, again, kind of embracing his architectural interests in the context of this move, giving that this move a little bit of extra energy and interest because he is moving into this much more 18th century style house uh, in his view anyways. And he actually tries to study the architectural history of the new house. So this is a, a letter to Derleth that's unlike most of them, which are kind of commentary on Derleth's stories, advice, commentary on how to really perfect that regional writing style. Uh, this one is just more a straightforward personal, personal uh, tale. Uh, next, we have uh, June fifth, nineteen thirty-three. Um, so this does um, this letter does uh, sound much more like a typical Lovecraft to Derleth letter in that it seems we have Derleth sending a couple of the stories his way, and then Lovecraft gives his advice on the stories. Um, and he starts out by going into Durless relationship with Wisconsin. And I think he does think that there's a, this is somewhere where Durless can really shine is by really embracing his relationship with Wisconsin, making that part of his identity, making that part of his writing style. Um, now he warns him again, and he kind of warns him in pretty harsh language, actually, about the use of coincidence. And this is not the first time. It's actually earlier in this volume we saw him write a letter to Durleth warning him not to rely too much on coincidence and fiction and he's kind of saying you know I'm telling you again and other people are going to tell you soon enough you know that if you keep relying on coincidence in your fiction it's, it's not going to work you're going to have to have better plotting better plot devices to complete your stories or to have put things put things together or to push the plot forward than just things happening just coincidence and then he talks quite a lot about suggestions on names, especially localization. Um, and, and this is a big theme of his in his letters to Deleuze is how to perfect local dialects and local names in particular. So he talks like about anglic anglicizing French names. And he seems to say this isn't that hard to do. You just got to start to do it and, and, and learn to do this well. And then he talks a little bit more about the College Street House. So quite a lot in this letter, but it really is a representative letter of, of the kind of thing we see Lovecraft writing to Jolath again and again, which is kind of complaining about his writings, elements of his writing in his night, in the nice way he does it. I mean, Lovecraft is pretty generous when he writes to his friends, but, you know, he's at the same time, he doesn't shy away from giving advice. So then we have one final one. It's really short where he it's kind of a follow up. It's dated June 10th. And he just says he just writes about anglicizing French names. He gives a little bit more detail on um, how to anglicize French names. All right. So that's it um, to Durleth. Now we have two to J. Vernon Shea. And one of these is really, really unhinged. And the first one I want to look at today dated March 29th, 1933. Um, 
Jay Vernon Shea, of course, is a younger writer, is someone who's been corresponding with him for a few years by this point, but he's still younger and still learning and, and still one. It's not, not really, in a sense, as equal the way some of the other people he writes to are more as equal. So this comes off much more as a berating uh, kind of like an angry older man, like saying, I'm going to teach you this lesson and you must listen. So he starts out, though, it starts out pretty nice where he's trying to encourage his writing. Um, and he's talking about Shay's novel, The Cell, which I haven't read. Most of these things I haven't read or come across, but he gives a bunch of suggestions. But then he goes into this long rant. I don't know what inspired it. I have to have the original Shea letter to Lovecraft to know exactly what inspired this. But even compared to like the Howard letters, I found this one really, really um, aggressively hostile in the way he talks about these issues. Um, and it's about the Nazis and the Jews. And he goes on in, in very, and again, this is very close to the letter he wrote to Morton on the similar topic. The Morton one was June 12th. This one is May 29th. So just two weeks, less than two weeks between these two letters. But this one is much more hostile. And um, maybe Morton kind of knew how to deal with Lovecraft on these issues by this point. I don't know. But um, yeah, he, he basically says Jews are a problem in an Aryan nation, um, which is not that far from, from Hitler's position. He writes, for instance, uh, as for the Nazis, of their crudeness, there can be no dispute. Yet in many ways, the impartial analyst cannot help having a certain sympathy for some phases of their position, some phases, phases of their position. They are fighting in their naive and narrow way a certain widespread and insidious mood in recent years, which certainly spells potential decadence for the Western world. And one can't help respecting the intention. However ugly and even dangerous some of their methods may appear to be, Hitler is no Mussolini, but I'm damned if the poor chap isn't profoundly sincere and patriotic. It's his credit, rather than otherwise, that he doesn't subscribe to the wild, windy flatulent of the idealistic liberals whose policies lead only to chaos and collapse. As for as much advertised or his, and hysterically condemned Jewish, Jew policy, there's something to be said for one phase of it. Of course, it's silly to ban Jewish books, to impose disabilities on Germanically cultured Jews, or to assume that, biologically speaking, a dash of Semitic blood unfits one for Aryan citizenship. That is generally conceded. But after all, there is a very real and very grave problem in the presence of an intellectually powerful minority springing from a profoundly alien and emotionally repulsive culture stream defined in civilization as a whole, using its keen mentality and ruthless enterprise to secure disproportionate hold on the mental and aesthetic life of a nation. End quote. So, there it is. Um, and he goes on at some length about this, but I don't want to repeat too much of it because we've already sort of talked about this, but this is another letter to kind of go to if you want to see how Lovecraft is, is I think he's responding to the rise of, of, of Hitler and his policy and his added in his well-known by that point policies towards the Jews, which are being implemented at that point. Um, at one point in this letter, he, he actually compares uh, Jews and blacks, saying Jews are different because it's a cultural kind of contamination, while with blacks, it would be like a racial or blood contamination. Um, and he kind of uh, makes light of the Scottsboro case as well. So 
it seems based on the tone the way he writes this that chase asks him his opinion about the scottsboro case and and lovecraft just kind of laughs it off as 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 a rather insignificant thing um he says naturally nobody wants to kill the poor n-word unless they were guilty that is nobody who needs to take it into account but it doesn't seem to me that their innocence is at all likely this is no low-grade lynching incident a very fair court has passed on the case and if the culprits were mere white bums who hadn't happened to excite the sympathies of the radical element there'd be no stir at all about the matter the facts that the victims were low wenches is wholly immaterial except so far as their credibility is concerned unquote so he he seems to be on the side of the um prosecutors in that case now this case obviously is seen as a miscarriage of justice um due to the fact that basically black people weren't allowed on juries in the south at the time um but you know these at least some of these nine and they were pretty much they were all under 19 right or maybe some maybe maybe under 20 um were accused of raping two white women. Um, I mean, Lovecraft's opinion is not the common one today. Maybe it was common among whites at the time. But anyways, I don't want to say too much more about this, but it's pretty, it's, it's gross enough. This is a gross letter. Um, a lot more on culture and race throughout this whole thing. Um, like, listen to this. Uh, I believe it is childish and absurd fancy fallacy to fancy that American literature and aesthetics could ought to be or conceivably could be other than normal proclamation of the original English dream with such local modifications as geography, social conditions, and historical experience may naturally introduce, end quote. Now, I've read a lot of American literature, you know, not just Lovecraft. I've been reading American literature for a long time, and certainly I'm aware of the regionalization he's hinting at here, but to say the best of American literature is a mere extension of English literature is, is so ridiculously silly. Um, you know, it's a, it's a silly, this is this is kind of statement is as dumb and si as silly as his God save the king kind of nonsense that he would sometimes play with. Um, what else does he have in this letter? Uh, immigrants can't create great nations. This is from my notes, but uh, he, he takes a couple pages to make this argument that immigrants cannot create great nations. Uh, I guess he doesn't see um, British Americans as immigrants. Um, later on, he actually does talk about colonial literature. Well, I guess we'll get to that later in this episode. A little more on machine culture. He tends to, you know, in these letters where he really goes off on race, and this is one of the more unfortunate ones where he does this, um, he, he often turns around and comes back to this machine culture problem and kind of framing it as a problem of the machine age. And instead of actually like interrogating his ideas, I think as well as he should have. I think sometimes I'm interested in what he has to say about the machine age, but it seems sometimes he uses it as, as a shield for some of his, his ideas, which are being challenged at the time by people. I think, I think one reason this letter does come off to me as a little hostile is because maybe Shea was challenging him a little bit on some of his views.
But anyways, I find this letter incredibly unhinged and, and incredibly unfortunate. So that's that. Um, and again, I'm not going to say too much more about it. The next one we have to him, to, to Shea, is, is July 30th, 1933. Um, so this is a bit of a mix. It, it does pick up this clone. I think this is the follow-up letter, to be honest. Um, he talks about authors needing experience. He starts out giving the advice to, to a young writer. Um, but then he jumps in and says we need to ban interracial marriage in America. And he, he, again, he says this, it's always about the amount, right? He says, oh, a little bit wouldn't matter. But the problem is there's too many African-Americans. So because of this, we need to ban interracial marriage, right? If it was just like three or four, that'd be fine. It wouldn't be doing any damage to our culture. Again, he kind of excludes black people entirely from American civilization, as you would expect. I'll just read what he says here. As for the Negro question, I think that interracial marriage ought to be banned in view of the vast number of blacks in the country. Illicit miscegenation by the white man is bad enough, heaven knows, but at least the hybrid offspring is kept below a definite color line and kept from vitiating the main stock. Nothing but pain and disaster can come from the mingling of black and white, and the law ought to aid in checking this criminal folly, granting the Negro his full due. He is not the sort of material which can mix successfully into the fabric of civilized Caucasian nation. Isolated cases of high-grade hybrids prove nothing. End quote. I mean, yeah, if you say that, then no counterexample is going to suffice. Oh, I'm kind of sick of reading this stuff sometimes. Um, what is more interesting than this? Well, he, oh, wait, I, I should mention this. So he does say, oh, New York's become a shithole because of Semitic influences. So that's after he, he, he wrote just what I just said. <laughs> but more interesting is, I think Shea must have challenged him on this idea of immigrants creating culture. Because he says, there's no such thing as a colonial tradition, right? Now, at first I'm thinking, is he talking about like like kind of a proto-post-colonial idea? And no, he's t he seems to be talking about American literature as being kind of a colonial literature or a colonial tradition. And he just says, no, U.S. literature is not a colonial literature. U.S. literature is just English literature. So not one of his finest moments by far. One of his dumbest. All right. Uh, those both letters are probably useful for reading, too. Um, here he was. I, I was so excited to start because it's like, oh, we can talk about this, the, these issues. But I would actually read these letters again or go back over them. I read them and took notes, and now I'm kind of looking at them again. And it's just, I don't know. Things like this that make me not want to go through the fifth volume of the selected letters. You know, I like the Howard letters because you got the back and forth uh, with them. But just the one-sided Lovecraft rants. I, I can't take too, much more, too many more of these. Anyways, moving on, we have uh, three letters to uh, Clark Ashton Smith. Ah, yes, Th these are kind of fun. So it's kind of a palate cleanser here before we move on. Um, these he talks about a bookend of Clark Ashton Smith's, uh, like a like a statue or something he made called the Nameless Icon, and this is on his shelf, right, like a bookend. And he gets all these imaginative experiences from the statue. And 
So he talks about, I think, in all three of the letters. Yeah, in all three of the letters, May 31st, June 14th, and June 29th. They all are all about this nameless icon statue. I wasn't able to find a picture of it, but I, I'm sure it was wild. If you've ever seen Clark Ashton Smith statues and, and artistic work, some nice stuff. You understand why Lovecraft um, sort of dug it. But yeah, I... All three of these, look at these, uh, these carvings by Smith. Um, now, yeah, I guess that's all I want to say. Um, so I'm kind of cramming three letters into one, basically because he keeps talking about experiences he has while he's looking at and thinking about and imagining around the nameless icon statue. In the third one, though, on June 20th, he just talked a little bit about more on the College Street house. In particular, he explores the attic. Of the College Street House, and again, you can tell he's really eager to to uh, to be in that house, and he's enjoying it. So, anyways, the next seven letters we have are all just one letter to one person. So there's no more. Um, so seven more people he writes, but in each case, there's only one letter. So I'll just look at these chronologically in the order they were written. So first we have Robert Block, um, June 9th. And like I said, I, I, I'm not sure if this is the first. I don't remember a letter to Robert Block before, but this one, it doesn't strike us as an introductory letter in any sense. He's actually talking, he must have been writing him before this. But he's actually talking about, you know, Block and him being young. And, you know, you know how Lovecraft likes to sign his things to younger people. I'm grandpa. This is kind of a letter that sort of does this, but it does it talking about snapshots of him as a younger age and how funny it would be to to send him a, a, a snapshot, a photograph of him as, as a, at a younger age. It's not, it's not the funniest joke I ever heard, but it's uh, in the context, I guess, Lovecraft found it humorous to think about him as himself as a younger man, juxtaposed to Robert Block, who, you know, is still fairly young at the time. Um, next, we have uh, Farnsworth Wright, June 18th. This is mostly about revision of some proofs uh, of, from some story. And we can tell Farnsworth Wright is maybe a bit frustrated at the lack of production from Lovecraft for publication of Weird Tales. Uh, and we've talked a lot in the last few episodes about how Lovecraft is a little anxious about his own kind of place in the weird fiction market and he doesn't quite know where where he fits in anymore um and he kind of says i don't really have too much for you but he suggests some other writers so he's he's generous that way and he, he says there might be some other writers who might fit your your needs so he doesn't completely ignore farnsworth Wright's need for for stories but kind of sends them in a different way um next we have june 24th a letter to alfred galpin uh, where he talks about the 66 College Street House, again, talking about um, the style. Um, and we see H.P. Lovecraft's pleasure at living in this house, but he's also worried about how to keep it long term because financial problems are not they're not going to get better. His poverty is not improving. Uh, and plus, he's got his aunt's health to worry about, which is is quite bad. She like broke a leg or something. So he he. Tells him a little bit about that. Um, next, we got Wilford Branch Tallman. Uh, and he mentions, this is actually a very simple letter 
where he's just talking about a ghost writing an article for him on Dutch, the Dutch in Colonial New York. It's a topic that Lovecraft knew a little bit about. In fact, it shows up in a couple of his stories, most prominently in um, The Lurking Fear. But this is a fiction, a nonfiction essay. A lot of Lovecraft's ghostwriting at this time and revisions were nonfiction. Like the anthology I have of his collaborations, it's all the fiction stuff, right? But I don't know if anyone's ever collected all these other articles he ghostwrote. Um, you know, it might be worth checking out. But this is there's an article out there uh, about written by Wilfred Blanche Tallman on the title page, anyways, about the Dutch and colonial New New, New England. Um, they say New York before New England, I think. Uh, but this was actually written by Lovecraft, right? So what's next? Robert E. Howard. Oh, um, June twenty fourth, July twenty fourth. Sorry, July twenty fourth. Robert E. Howard. Um, he talks about his aunt's injury. Um, now he does a lot here about art as a necessity of civilization. A civilization must have art. Art must have civilization. Um, so he talks about this quite a lot. And I think this is part of the back and forth between Howard and Lovecraft at this time, which is getting more and more contentious uh, on this issue of civilization versus barbarism. Um, he talks also here, very, this is a kind of an interesting point he makes, where he says societies are too complex. And so he doesn't think social science can be successful. He doesn't think society can be studied scientifically. Um, Instead, he kind of says what really, I really, it's just too complex, I guess, is what he's trying to say. It's too messed up. Uh, there's too many things going on. So it has to be studied kind of culturally or historically, uh, more from a humanistic perspective. Strict social science is not going to work. You can't have like a, a theorem to study social mobility or politics. Um, at the same time, though, he makes a claim that is social scientific -y, where he says, like, power will always trump the idea of justice. So he's, he's kind of got this Machiavellian idea about power and how justice is really just a gift given to us by being members of a civilization. And that only can exist because of power. Uh, he talk, complains about machine age destroying the facade of, of democracy as well. There's quite a lot in here. Uh, obviously, this is going to be another letter we'll, we'll come back to in a, in a future series when I look strictly at the Howard Lovecraft debate. I'm not quite sure I'm going to do it yet or how many episodes that will be, but it might be a fair number because these letters are good. Um, but he does sum up the three points where he sees there's a disagreement between us. So it's kind of helpful. He kind of says, these are the three points where we're, we're kind of in conflict. One, he says, I value aesthetic and intellectual activities highly because they are beyond doubt an expression of the most thoroughly evolved part of the human personality. Two, I value civilization above barbarism because I feel that it utilizes human personality to the full instead of involving a waste of man's most highly evolved faculties. Three, I think that the most precious possession of a highly evolved man is its freedom of thought and expression, and that conversely the worst hardship he can suffer is a curtailment of that freedom, either through overt censorship or through the obligation of writing insincere material to suit commercial editors, end quote. Now, obviously, that last point is directly coming out of his own experiences as a writer of, of weird fiction, trying to find a market for his grow, evolving ideas and evolving style. All right, next, Helen Sully. Miss Helen Sully, as it's written in the version here. 
So I don't know much about these. I know the 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 book um, put together. I think St. Josie did it, which has the William Blanche Tolman letters include the the Helen and Genevieve Sully letters. So um, what we have here is this is this I think is from the cover of that book, the collection of those stories. Helen V. Sully is one of Lovecraft's few women correspondents. Uh, he had a fair number. I wouldn't say few, but uh, certainly fewer than the men. But A friend of Clark Ashton Smith, she made a long trip from California to Rhode Island to see Lovecraft, and he treated her with this customary old-world courtesy. In their subsequent correspondence, Lovecraft attempted to act as a counselor to Sully, consoler to Sully, who had apparently lapsed into depression. In a sage words on ethics, values, and contemporary civilization are still of value. He also exchanged a few letters with Helen's mother, Genevieve Sully. All right. This one, um, this letter has a few things in it. Um, first, I guess it has a little bit about sightseeing in Massachusetts, which if this is written after she visited, then maybe he's saying a little bit more about sightseeing in Massachusetts, uh, something they may have done together. Uh, if he mentioned her visiting before, I must have missed it in, in an earlier letter. But the heart of this letter is about science and cosmic horror. And so um, so this is the whole old thesis. So he's kind of repeating himself to her, things he said to others. But if you're just joining us and you don't quite know, his basic idea is modern science is annihilating old ideas and old traditions and old things that gave us a feeling of security and stability in the world. And this actually makes us more important. It makes it more important for us to hold on to our values because our values then become the only thing that's static in a world in which uh, civilization is constantly changing, or, or not civilization, truth is constantly changing. Um, the way he writes this here is this. This fantastic, irresponsible world of aimless skepticism and the modern temper is peculiarly irritating to one with still valid roots. Yet one is compelled to admit that inevitable historic conditions have done much to force such an attitude upon all thinking persons who up to lack certain emotional anchorages or faculties for exercising a sense of proportion. As assuredly the, the increased knowledge of the external world and of mankind's own nature and motivations, which the science of the past hundred years has brought, has annihilated completely the old set of explanations, assumed absolute values, taken for granted goals and conceptions of man's relationship to the infinite cosmos of time and space, on which many of our feelings, interests, standards, and expectations formally rested. End quote. So, uh, as you probably know by now, Lovecraft's response to this is then, is then to kind of stick to some traditional values as something to hang on to. So this, this letter serves as kind of a nice little primer or an introduction to his overall ideas. So I look forward to reading more letters that he writes to Sully. Hopefully there's a few more. Um, and then the last letter we have is, is July 28, 1933 to Richard Ellie Morse, which is just about horror in the museum, another one of his collaborations. But he basically says this is his work, mostly his work. It's very similar to a letter he wrote about the Curse of Yig, where he says this is something I revised, but really it's my work. The, the basic plot wasn't that much, so I basically changed it all and went my own way with it. Uh, and that's a story we'll be looking at when we come back to the revisions in, in a few months. So I guess that's it. That's all I have for you in this episode. So as I said, there's a, really, there's a couple letters here, if you're interested in Lovecraft's views on race, that really are important to look at. And 
I, I my, my stomach was a bit turning though looking at them unfortunately but whatever so next episode we'll be looking at the letters written from august to october uh 1933 so just kind of moving on into into the year how many is it i think it's well, it'll be 20 letters. I want to know how many pages. About 50 pages. That's about normal. So that doesn't look like any monster letters are hidden in here. But you never know. I haven't taken notes on it yet. I've been I've been backed up due to some personal reasons. And I'm, I'm leaving China in about a week. Hoping to have these letters all recorded by then. But um, we'll see if I have the time. Anyways, let me know what you think about any of these issues uh, or particularly Lovecraft's, I guess, ex exposure to the rise of Hitler in Germany and how that may have affected how he, was, he saw things. It seems in the short term, he actually felt, feels the need to defend some of his more, uh, more nasty ideas about race. Uh, but we'll see if that holds up in his future letters. I don't know. Um, anyways, uh, that's going to be it for now. Uh, now I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Gee, it breaks my heart to see you day after day turning away as much as to say you've never Sharing all your